Hey there, one quick message. Hope you're enjoying our podcast episodes so far. We're interviewing these entrepreneurs to help inspire you and other listeners to build and grow your businesses. So if you like the podcast and know someone else who could benefit from listening, then please pass it on. Thanks again for tuning in. It's a typical question. I do a lot of mentoring specifically for the reasons that I mentioned. I feel that if somebody sat me down and said, hey, here's a list of things you don't do, you know, it would have taken just one hour and I would have avoided a whole bunch of mistakes. My wife's super supportive. She calls herself a dot-com widow. <laughs> What you're looking for is not a vitamin. You're not looking to enrich somebody's life. You're looking for a painkiller. The worst thing you could do as a startup or as a company is to... In the business school, they teach you how to manage a large company. They don't tell you how to start a company and how to make the company successful and grow it from zero to whatever, a million dollars. You got plans this weekend? I'm doing some of the classes at Harvard and I have finals. My plans are to complete the finals. This sounds like fun. <laughs> True. <laughs> I went to graduate school after that. I was like, oh, I'm done with tests. Yeah, I have gone all the way up through a PhD and but as a technologist, you kind of have to stay current on all the things, which is a tough thing to do. Yeah, no. So I pressed record just a few minutes ago and I'm ready when you are, if you want to just jump on it. I am. All right, let's do it. Just go ahead. If you want to introduce yourself, tell us who you are and then where you're located and then a few minutes about your company and we'll take it from there. Sounds good. My name is Sergey Sendikovsky. I'm a co-founder, CTO and CPO of a company called Graken. We're located, I'm personally located in Irvine, California, and the company is located in Carlsbad. It's about maybe uh, 10 miles from San Diego proper. What is Raken? Raken is a project management software for construction industry in the broader sense. We help companies manage their daily activities on the construction side. Do you have a construction background? I do not. Besides doing some construction work during my downtime in college, I don't have a construction background. But this is kind of emblematic of some of the startups that you see out there. And they usually get started one of two ways. People are either being in the industry for a very long time and they just know that there got to be a better way to do what they're doing and they tell themselves one day they're going to go start their own company and that's one way companies get started so they scratch their own itch. Another way is companies or people looking from the outside in and saying, why are you doing things the way you're doing things? So they don't have any limiting beliefs and therefore they're just not unencumbered, but all the knowledge that would come with coming from the industry. And they usually come up with some of the surprising ideas. So Raken was definitely the latter, not the former. And you said your name was Sergi. And can you pronounce your whole name? Because I don't want to mispronounce it again. Sure. Sergei Sendikovsky. Doesn't sound like an American name. It is not. I immigrated from Ukraine when I was 18, came to United States with an electrical engineering degree, more or less. Electrical engineering degree from one of the technical colleges in Ukraine. I studied to be a radar engineer. And at a certain point, as a family, we decided to immigrate to the United States. And here I am. Could you tell us a little bit about growing up and what it was like in Ukraine? Because I have not heard anyone from that part of Europe. Could you give some background on what it's like growing up there and what the difference is between there and like America? I grew up in the capital of Ukraine, but it's a pretty big city, and it's just indicative of how cities are in that part of the world. And uh, I grew up on the outskirts of the city. It was, at some point, a settlement line for Jewish residents, and the city crossed it. The settlement line was the line that, from the Tsarist times, the Jews were not allowed to cross. But the city crossed the line the other way. So we ended up being inside of the city, and I had sort of very modest upbringing and it wasn't anything super special. Just a typical kid went to a typical, very prototypical school. And I always had a flair for science, physics, and math. And Russia has a system where larger Soviet Union at the time had a system where education is free. And what it does, it basically sorts out people based on aptitudes early on and then just encourages people to go into certain professions. Instead of going to high school, I ended up going to a technical college where you basically, it's more or less a 
vocational school, which is not practiced in the United States in a broader sense, but it's very popular in Europe in general. I went to vocational school and that's where I completed my high school and together with some of the subjects that it would later become part of the profession that I chose. What's the difference between like a vocational school and a regular one? And, and what was your particular one that you were sent to? It was technical in nature, just in general. And it had four major themes. It's a system where your application is literally you have to take exams. So I took exams and I did really well. And I got accepted into radar engineering. Radar engineering was one of the things that was very common in then USSR because it was trying to pose the challenge to the United States stealth development stealth technology. The answer was we need a lot of radar engineers because we need a lot of radars. It was the vestiges of the old system and that's where I ended up. You were there and you graduated when you were 18 and then moved to the U.S. with your family? That's right. How many people were in your family? And tell us about the move over to the U.S. It was my whole family that came over. Again, we came over a number of years as a broader family, but my immediate family and my mom, dad, and my kid brother, and my grandma, we came together as a family unit. It was five of us, and we ended up, my uncle with his family immigrated a year earlier, and he went to San Francisco. My aunt ended up in New York with my cousin and her family, so we had a choice, and we ended up choosing California, and my opinion, that was the right choice. I'm not sure I would have been to New York so many times. I've been there. I had a startup there. And I don't know if I would have chosen New York as the final destination, but it's just sort of personal preference. Ending up in San Francisco, I spent a couple of years learning English in community college and working for a small engineering firm that completed a first onboarding years, what, what I would call onboarding or adaptation years after we came to the United States. Was there a particular reason they wanted to get out of Ukraine? Was it to deal with freedom or did you just see potential as having a better job and life in U.S.? Tell us about that. We came to the United States as refugees and this was on religious grounds. There was still quite a bit of anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union and later on what became Ukraine as a separate country. But that was the reason. We always wanted to, even as I was a child, there was a lot of talk about getting out and where exactly we're going to go. And we had a couple of possible destinations and we could have gone to Israel or Germany at the time, but then United States opened up. It was, if you look at the immigration waves into United States, sometimes it opens up, sometimes based on political direction of the company and what company decides to do with the immigration policy, things open up. And it was the last wave of immigration out of Russia and Ukraine. Now, we obviously have different waves of immigrants, but these are not refugees. We have refugees from other countries, and now people, will, they immigrate out of Ukraine and Russia. They simply move as for better economic opportunities. And I was part of the last refugee wave out of Ukraine slash Soviet Union. So you were Jewish? That's right. Still am. So what do you have to deal with if you were Jewish and living in Ukraine? In Soviet Union, people in their passports, it would say their nationality. As nationality, it sounds pretty foreign to American ear because we're all Americans and this is what it says in our passport. It's a country of citizenship. In Russia and Ukraine, it's not just an indication of the country of citizenship, but you also were ethnically identified. If you're living in Ukraine, you could be Ukrainian or you could be Russian or you could be Jewish. Now, it sounds strange because Judaism is considered religion in the United States, but in broader Russia and in the broader sense, it's ethnic minority. So even if you were secular, you were still considered Jewish and it was codified in your passport. That meant that some of the opportunities, educational opportunities and work opportunities and advancement was limited. My dad had to go to deep into Russia in order to study, and some of his siblings, my uncle and aunt, they also had to go out. When I was growing up, things have relaxed, at least on the government level, because the Soviet Union was no more, but it was still a prevailing attitude towards Jews, secular or not, and passports still indicated your nationalities. That was tough. And again, you suffered anti-Semitism on the I would call it a domestic front. It's just sort of your educational opportunities, your work opportunities, and things like that. It was not just only the government, but also the larger populace, which is very indicative how things went for World War II when we're thinking about 
the things that occurred to Holocaust that occurred to Jews in general in World War II, the country that got stuck with that blame is Germany, but there was a lot of broader support from other countries they occupied. So the local populace was just as anti-Semitic as Nazis were. So again, it just, I think it goes back to those days and much, much earlier. And I agree with you on the Germany front. It's funny, especially if you move to America, like how the history books are written and people just believe whatever was said in those. But I think with the power of the internet, obviously you can kind of figure that out more and stories like yours, because I would not have had a clue that Based on in any World War II movie, it's always just Germany versus everybody else, right? And not necessarily the bigger countries over there. History is written by the winners. Right. There's my favorite quote by Nietzsche, and it's not a complete quote, but it's sort of my interpretation of it. It's the truth is always open to interpretation, and interpretation is subject to who's in power at that time. History is politics looking back. When I'm thinking about you living there and having to deal with I guess maybe their parents could have been in the war or maybe even some of the people that were anti-Jewish at the time that you were living with. Even though they might have lost the war, those people can still feel that way. I guess it'd be the same with the Civil War in America. Even the South lost. That's right. They still, like, it took Black people how many years to vote? And then even when they did, they would kill them. Just from a movie perspective, obviously, can't understand that, how you would have to live. Could you just give an example or two, and then we'll move on with your story of like what you would have to deal with? And again, was it just going to different schools or you couldn't get the jobs? Yeah, I think it's all of those things. And primarily kids suffered, again, like I said, it's the sort of domestic anti-Semitism where everybody in school would know, and they wouldn't make it a secret. And everybody would know that you're Jewish. And again, I was in the predominantly Jewish area. I didn't feel it as much. My wife had a much, much tougher time than I did. She would get beat up at school all the time. It's one of those things. You would get beat up and it would go from how teachers treated you and how then it just permeated into how kids felt because they're basically part of their environment and what their parents felt and so on. It was a thing that people talked about in Jewish families and whatnot. And it became as Soviet Union was disintegrating, at the time of great upheaval, really bad things happened because it just kind of drudges up the bottom. Yeah, and where are you located? My company is in Singapore, but I live in uh, Malaysia right now. Cool, yeah. So why did you decide to become a member? You know, it was really uh, by chance that I stumbled upon your podcast. Yours just popped up. I said, okay, let me just try. And I like your interview style. I thought you asked good questions and I learned a lot. It was quite in-depth. So you mentioned about Patreon that I can get certain benefits. So when I looked into it, I said, okay, why not? I have really honestly already spent a lot of money that I didn't get any return from. I said, why not? I mean, in this journey, there's a lot of things that I spend money on, like the courses I bought, whatever. I said, why not? I just be a member and I get to speak to you and perhaps I can learn by having a one-on-one with you. Yeah, so what have you thought of our group calls so far? I like the group calls so far. I like how insightful it is and... It's kind of an extension of your interviews. That's how it feels. And I think that if anybody has a real project they're working on, they can benefit a lot from it. One thing that made me want to join was when you shared the first group call. I heard that episode. I'm like, this is a nice little community. It's friendly. It's genuine. And so that was helpful. So has it gotten better since then, since you've moved away and even today? It's gotten better, but I feel that anti-Semitism in both Russia and in Ukraine, but largely in Russia, is sort of skin deep. Not in the sense that it doesn't have deep roots, but it's sort of this veneer or patina of respectability. It's only a skin deep, a little deeper, and there's very strong ethnic. And what's going on with Russia now, with sort of virulent nationalism, you see that being drudged up. And hopefully, I guess maybe a generation or two, maybe that will be more washed away because I think that's what you've seen over the years, at least in America. Again, just kind of bring it back to the Civil War. I feel that no country will get better until it recognizes the problems and atone for your sin. So America has done that. And one of the things that I feel that, again, the history is written by the winners, but during the Nuremberg trial after World War II, Russia should have been sitting right next to Hitler. Russia was the winner. It was not possible to do that. So it hasn't gone through the internal look at itself and repudiate all the crimes. And until it does that, I don't feel that things will get better. And again, it's very indicative of what's happening there now and the relationship between Russia and the broader world. And it absolutely borders on fascism. And if you look at what Russia is doing, it's no different than Germany of 1938. 
Well, let's bring it up to a lighter note and thank you for sharing that. And again, we don't get a lot of that perspective of entrepreneurs, especially, but you were able to come to the U.S. and make a better life for yourself. So do you want to tell us about your journey? As far as when you came to California, you told us that you went to a community college, started learning English and got a job. And then do you want to take it from there? Yeah. I. In what year? That was 1994. So at the end of 1994, we came over. It was in December. And again, the first couple of years are obviously adaptation years. And I was learning English and try to converse on a basic level and finding a job. I was 18 at the time. And I knew that certainly at some point I need to go to college and get an American degree besides the degree I already had. So I, but in order for me to be able to do that, obviously I had to learn English. And the best way to do that is to be in the work environment. So I started working for a hydraulics company. It was a small engineering firm in the Bay Area. I worked there for a couple of years while I was studying community college. And then eventually I went to UCSD. I transferred from a community college to UCSD my junior year. And at the time I already started working for Palm Computing part of 3Com. Not many people remember home computing anymore, but it was basically the company that started all the handheld device and the smartphones eventually would become smartphones industry. So I started working for home computing as it was part of 3Com, a larger company. Then I transferred down to another 3Com location in San Diego. So I worked there. Then I started working for a supercomputer center while I was still in college. And then eventually Encyclopedia Britannica. I had three part-time jobs. I was trying to sample and trying to understand what exactly I wanted to do in computer science because computer science was broad and it wasn't really clear or rather you could go into many different areas and you just need to choose one. And then how do you choose one? Well, you try a few things and see what works. And what I found that I have a knack for taking complex problems and breaking them down and making them simpler. So I started out as typical software engineer would as you know junior engineer and then eventually senior engineer and rose through the ranks director of engineering and vp of engineering and eventually cto of this and vp of that that was my story and that's a typical engineering story right so you either stay kind of mid-level on the engineering side or you end up progressing and at the time literally your progression would be limited to you couldn't go and become CTOs were not very common at the time. You had technical people, and then eventually, if they wanted to grow, they needed to jump the management ladder and rise up through the management ladder. While working for uh, DirecTV, I got a master's degree in computer science, partly because I wanted to do that, and partly because you could not advance past director level unless you did have an advanced degree. And that was about five years into being in the US? Yeah, just about. That was and before you jump to it too much, if you don't mind, I don't want to skip over the part like the change in lifestyle. Can you tell us about that? Like coming from Ukraine, I guess you couldn't speak English yet, maybe necessarily, but was it everything you thought it would be? Yeah, it was exactly what I thought it would be and more. Again, our expectations about the United States were sort of they were formed by what our relatives and people just in general who already immigrated told us. And it's very difficult if people can describe what life is like, but it's so different unless you experience this for yourself. It's very difficult to tell or very difficult to understand how your life is going to change. And again, it, for me, it was definitely formidable years. So it's going from teens to being an adult and kind of fending for yourself and my formidable years were in the United States. It was difficult to say, hey, my life would have been so much different if I stayed there. I'm sure it would have been, but the expectation is at what point the life is just simply different in the United States versus you're just growing up and your life is different because you are growing up. So it's very difficult for me to tell, but it kind of conflates in my mind. I think People can't understand what the life is like outside of the United States unless you do go outside of the United States. So people who are critical of the United States, they don't have anything to compare it with. And I did. And I sort of, everything here I loved. And I think one of the key things that I love is nobody will stand in your way of you making the better life for yourself and doing the best you possibly can. So I think that's great. You're left alone to your own devices and nobody bothers to stop you. I think that's one of the key things. That's the thing that's unique. It's almost difficult to say, hey, our best thing in this country is we don't bother people, right? It's not something we actively do. It's something we actively don't do. I stayed with my parents until I was 21 and moved away. 
again, our life was very different because I grew up in the ruler environment and this was San Francisco or close to the ocean. And I just fell in love with water in general. And I always wanted to be somewhere warmer and near the ocean. So again, the life, the environment has changed. People are obviously different. The language is different. The culture is different. Was it easy to make friends? It was. I didn't find it too jarring. And typically what happens is when you immigrate, you seek out people just like yourself who immigrated earlier because you try to cling to familiar. And it did happen with us, obviously. As a community, we're pretty isolated in inside of Ukraine and Russia. And then here we got connected better. The communal aspect of it was just different. So that's different and better. That's one. Number two, since I started working early, I got into the American environment and the environment of the smaller company. And I was imbued with a sense of entrepreneurship. Even at that time, I thought at some point I'll start my own company. I don't want to work for anybody. I really want to push the boundaries of what I can do. I appreciate you sharing that part because again, it's a cool perspective for anyone who's complaining about things or realizing, you know, how hard life is and what you have to do move with your whole family over here and you don't know English yet. That's pretty cool that you're able to do that. Basically, you spend those first five years, you're saying jumping around in a technical aspect. And then you want to take it from DirecTV. Basically, you're a manager there. I'm a senior manager at DirecTV. And by the way, another very small point, I feel like the people who immigrate are basically ready-made entrepreneurs because that's one of the first entrepreneurial endeavors that you're going to take. You're basically changing your life completely and you're taking your life in your own hands. I think that's ultimately comparable to becoming an entrepreneur and leaving the safety of regular job for a large company and becoming your own boss and doing things on your own. I think that's pretty comparable. And that's why so many companies being started by immigrants, because this is just a very similar experience, even though similar experience in spirit, not necessarily in function. So going back to DirecTV, a very large company, I experienced a very large company number of times. And I thought to myself, okay, well, certain point I wanted to start the company. What's the best way of doing it? Well, obviously, just jumping right in. And from there, I started going the DirecTV multi-billion dollar company. So I started picking smaller companies, started working for smaller companies. And eventually, I was in San Diego. So DirecTV was my first job really in LA. From there, I went to a smaller and smaller set of companies until I joined the company as a senior director with some of the additional duties outside of engineering more in project management arena and quality assurance and things of that nature. In Los Angeles, there was one of the companies called Lower My Bells. And Lower My Bells was notably one of the largest exits at the time. So it exited and it got bought by experience. When I joined Lower My Bells, it was still fairly small. I think it was 75 people at the time. And it got purchased by Experian close to $450 million. It basically kicked off. And if you look at the as you can tell, I'm a student of history and looking at entrepreneurial endeavors or entrepreneurial ecosystems as a historical subject. Majority of the company or majority, this is including Silicon Valley and all the tech hubs that you see right now, they get started on the basis of universities and eventually companies on the basis of those universities. And as companies become successful and they exit to larger companies, entrepreneurs have cash and they recycle their experience and they recycle that cash within the community itself so they don't move away. And this is what happened with uh, Lower My Bells. A lot of people out of Lower My Bells, they ended up starting their own companies, which was a backbone of the Los Angeles entrepreneurial ecosystem. I was lucky enough to work at the company and just kind of see firsthand how the entrepreneurial company and the smaller company operates. And that got me thinking that I definitely now understand more or less the dynamics of the smaller company and what would be well-established startups. So I still didn't feel that I had enough of the business acumen to start a company. So eventually I ended up doing my PhD. And by 2008, I felt that I had enough of the business knowledge to start my own company. And you were like, what, 28, 29 at this point? That's right. Okay. Which is pretty freaking impressive too, to be able to do all this, learn English those first couple of years. And then you're saying you're finishing up your PhD. Cause I want to make sure we stay with the timeline. Like I put that in perspective. Most people are just in the US. It's hard to put in generalities on everybody, but that's kind of hard to fathom to go through all those experiences within 10 years, at least to me. You know, looking back at the journey, it's definitely fast paced when you're in it feels like you're moving slow, but again, moving fast and slow, it's also relative based on 
what's going on. But it's also a sense of urgency because I was 18 at the time that I came and I felt I was behind. I was a couple of years late for all the experiences. So I was always hurrying up and trying to close the gap. And again, when you just in life as an entrepreneurship, it doesn't have a shallow end. And so it's either head and shoulders above or you drowned. And I think taking that attitude to everything, including studying, including starting companies, I think served me well, certainly, and fit with my personality. And so it's just basically go out there, work hard, play hard, achieve. You don't look at your own acceleration as, okay, I'm moving fast or I'm moving slow. You're just moving towards the goal. And the quicker you can get there, the better. Do you have any mentors or anything along the way while you're doing all this? I met a lot of people who were instrumental and I didn't have in the broadest sense of the world, I didn't have any mentors. I had people that I admired. I was reading books and there were a lot of people that their point of view definitely resonated. And there were a couple of books that I, later on, I there was one of the books that came out, I don't remember what year, it certainly wasn't 2008. It was Great by Choice by Jim Collins. Jim Collins has a number of seminal books that he has written and those are go back to the 80s. And some of those books, they're in the same vein and the same series as Great by Choice. It's Built to Last and How Mighty Fall. And these are, I would consider, some of the seminal books. I've read them and I just, obviously, I wasn't mentored by Jim Collins, but I would consider them sort of, from a business perspective, it would be a mentor. Later on, as podcasts were becoming popular, I was listening to a number of podcasts and there were people also that I felt are Again, the view of the world and view of the business is very reminiscent of how I think of things. And that also prompted me when I started my first startup, I felt I was well prepared to do a startup, but I learned that it wasn't really the case. And I was still making a lot of rookie mistakes, even though I had a PhD and I felt that I really knew how to run a business. But in the business school, they teach you how to manage a large company. They don't tell you how to start a company and how to make the company successful and grow it from zero to whatever, a million dollars, and then $10 million to 15, and then eventually 50 and 100 and so on. So there are all different challenges that come with it. And it's not as simply doing more of the same thing. Yeah. And that's important. I mean, on the side, you would listen to these podcasts or read these books. It seems like you're already inspired and ready to hustle. But Maybe there's little things because you were talking about your business acumen wasn't maybe quite there yet, but it sounded like you used these other educational resources to help you gain that. So from Lower My Bills, you got your PhD. And then after your PhD, you started your first startup. Is that how it went? Yeah. Tell us about that, what year it was and how much money you had to start it off. It was in 2008 that I started the company. In 2008, I was still doing, was afraid to kind of leave the safety of a job of a full-time job and do my own thing. So as a lot of people do, they kind of start things on the side. What I noticed, and if you remember 2008 was a recession in the United States, you know, we had a housing crisis. And one of the things I noticed that people don't travel around for conferences anymore. And I felt, oh, what if I put some tech together that allowed people to attend conferences remotely through a video conferencing? It sounds like a cornball thing now, but it was pretty novel thing at the time. And especially with... What's cornball thing mean? <laughs> like, uh, you know, it's just very obvious. Yeah, okay, okay. I've just never heard of that, but okay, yeah, keep going. That was good. It seems like very obvious thing now, but at the time it wasn't. And equipment was expensive and the entire SaaS industry wasn't around yet. And so there's larger conferences could afford permanent installations and stream the video of the conferences even though it wasn't, again, wasn't prevalent. They were mostly having the closed circuit TVs inside of the conferences and inside of the venues, but something that was makeshift was not very common. So I thought of the idea, it was the name of the company was called Conference by Wire. And I started working on it. And again, typical entrepreneurial, find a co-founder, which I did. It was one of the guys I worked with at one of the companies, and we started a company together. He joined later on. I had a semblance of an idea, and then I started putting, again, I didn't know those terms at the time, but I started putting together a minimal viable product and see if I could use that product to get interest of others and pressure test it in the real environment. I started looking for board members, and it was kind of a funny story. One of the guys, I went to interview for one of the companies and uh, I didn't end up taking the job because it required for me to move 
And I couldn't do that because I was finishing up the PhD and I basically said no, And but we hit it off and we kept in touch. And so I asked him to become one of the board members, which he did. Now, later on, his company, which he was co-founder for, exited and they made a bunch of money. And we kept close contact, obviously, because he was a board member. And he said, hey, I'm advising yet another company, which has an interesting idea. And it seems like a natural fit with what you wanted to do. So I ended up joining and kind of merging that idea with another company in Texas. It was called Sensei. Sensei was all about video commerce. Since I was doing video and these guys were doing commerce and became sort of video commerce. Now, what is video commerce? You can imagine a YouTube player and as the video plays, then various products by different means come on screen and you can click on that product and put it into the shopping cart and you could do a complete checkout and even before the video ends, you can complete the purchase. So it was basically your viewing and marketing experience was fused together with e-commerce. Did you just kind of close down the company or they didn't buy you? It was merged and it was partly acquired. So it was kind of a complicated deal. You didn't tell us how much you had to actually use money-wise to get it started because you were still in school. And I mean, I didn't know if you saved up money because I think this is an important part that a lot of people email me about. They're like, hey, I want to know, like, how did you really start it? What do you use it towards? If you had to do it again, what you would have done? It's a typical question. I do a lot of mentoring specifically for the reasons that I mentioned. I feel that if somebody sat me down and said, hey, here's a list of things you don't do, you know, it would have taken just one hour and I would have avoided a whole bunch of mistakes. Now, the amount of money that I spent is not super emblematic, but close enough to be generalizable. The reason it's not super emblematic is because typically a lot of money at the early stage is spent on building the product. You need to pay developers. Since I'm a developer and my co-founder is a developer, you had to pay yourself. It was more like sort of sweat equity and whatever we put in into the business. So we didn't have to pay a lot. Now, eventually it ended up costing us about $80,000 in 2008 to launch the company, to do the product and to do early stage testing and starting to get clients. Now, people ask me, how much does it really take? I feel that this day and age, it's cheaper in some areas, but still there is a minimal viable, you know, there's the amount of money that you need to put in. So I feel that some people can get it started with very little money, but to get typical SaaS product onto the market, it would take you, I would say somewhere between 80 to $150,000. And did you have that saved up? I had that saved up and... I came to my wife and said, hey, we already had in 2008 two of our children. And I said, I would like to do this. And she was so supportive. It was so surprising because, again, I would have expected her to say, we now have a family. We have a growing family. What's going to happen? But she was very supportive of the idea. And so I felt encouraged. So practically all the money we had at the time went into the business. Oh, wow. And again, I think I can't overestimate how important it is to have people who want, believe in you, can lend a hand and very strong home front. I think it's just absolutely critical for you being an entrepreneur. Otherwise, I can't fathom to being successful in my further endeavors, starting from that point, unless my wife was supportive of that. I mean, I think my favorite interviews you've ever had are the ones where you've bleeped out their name. I think there was two of them where they were just absolute fails. Yeah, the two Patreon episodes, I think it was number two and then yeah. 17 that just came out recently. It was just like the oddest interaction ever. It was awkward and super, super entertaining. Yeah, well, good. Well, God, I got two entertaining Patreon ones there for you. <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing because you don't really know maybe at that point in time, even when you're getting married or having the kids, she might say it's okay at the time. But then when it's come time to actually say that they say no, then you might have not even pursued that. Good that she saw that in you. And did you end up moving to Austin, Texas from there with your family? My co-founder moved to Austin and I ended up working weeks in Austin and then coming back over the weekends. I basically more or less lived there for about two years. And again, my wife's super supportive. She calls herself a dot-com widow. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, anytime I talked to her, I never felt she wanted to have a take back. It was never the case. She was like, okay, we're a family. We're going to roll with the punches. Economy will do this and this will do that. And let's worry about the things we can control. She's very pragmatic this way. I really appreciate that. In general, I consider myself even keel. 
sort of not too high with the highs and not too lows with the lows, but I tend to take all the failures pretty close to heart. I think she always keeps me grounded. It's like she's even more even kill. Yeah. Is she from Ukraine? She is. It's a very typical, similar story to mine, I guess. And she came even earlier, but it was, I came as part of the last wave of immigration. I was at the end of that wave and she was at the beginning. Okay. Yeah. Cause you mentioned that she had a rougher time over there. She had much rougher time. Well, that's because, I mean, not good that she had a rougher time, but she could see like the hurdles that she had been going through something similar, even though she wasn't quote unquote an entrepreneur, the same type of thing, like coming over here and taking a chance and seeing it. It's not blind faith, but you've gone through things that were harder. It sounds like this would be easy comparatively. Exactly. It's kind of interesting. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. You're able to overcome, which gives you confidence, which gives you an ability to overcome. It's a cycle that kind of feeds itself. She's amazing in her own right, in the sense that, well, I would consider a family entrepreneurial experience. And we got married when I graduated, but she graduated much earlier. She's quite a scholar. She went to uh, USF and she graduated within three years. And she had a, I think if I'm not mistaken, she had a full scholarship. It was definitely her belief in me that I'm going to see this through both college and then eventually all the jobs and entrepreneurial endeavors. And just like you said, faith is basically belief without evidence. So she would say that it's not faith in me, right? It's the belief in me that's based on evidence. Yeah. What happened from there from Sensei? We were in the 2012 and you basically kind of started your own company, merged with them. Mm -hmm. Take us along your journey from there and tell us how old you were and the experiences you had. So I was, if you take 2008, 2010, 2012, at a certain point, again, as a company, we made a lot of mistakes. Could you tell us those? Sure. Typical issues that bedeviled companies, they have certain gaps in the sense are easier to overcome. There's such a thing as being too successful or in the context of startups or in the context of that particular startup is raising too much money. The basic belief of the entrepreneurs and your job as founder of any company is to make sure you don't run out of money. That's job one, two, and three. <laughs> yeah. You're always concerned about money because if you run out of money, the game is over. Now, that's certainly a fundamental problem if you don't have money or you run out of it. Now, the even bigger problem is raising too much money. Because when you raise too much money, and especially if you raise it from the private investors, they're also part of raising it from institutional investors and angels and whatnot. If you raise too much money, the money can't simply sit there. So you're being pushed by circumstances, by potential other opportunities, is to go far and wide. And we did go far and wide, trying to address an SMB market and then trying to address larger markets and then doing OEM deals, which is embedding of the software into other software and so on. So you, when you have an opportunity-rich environment, the worst thing you could do is become, as a startup or as a company, is to become unfocused. And you do many, many different things. Why? Because when you don't have money, then you, by nature, you end up focusing because you can only put your efforts to one particular thing and get that accomplished. Now, when you have a lot of money, the argument, well, we can't afford to do this, goes away. Now, all of a sudden, there's an opportunity to do this. Let's hire more people. So you end up hiring. Now, you can't hire quickly enough and maintain the same culture. So you end up lowering your standards in terms of hiring. Plus, then you basically tell yourself, why don't I just buy a company that already has people? You end up getting a lot of people quickly, but at the same time, that company brings its own culture. So you might end up with a culture clash and you might not. Again, that was one of the key mistakes is buying multiple companies to merge together to get more people and potentially chase after the opportunities which were half-baked and were not focused. So the company took on a lot of funding and then eventually spread itself too thin. And there were a lot of interests in pulling it wasn't accomplishing what every company needs to accomplish, which is to get its customer base and 
get a profitable business going because companies lull themselves into thinking that, well, we don't need to be profitable. We have plenty of money in the bank. We have a couple of years worth of money. So we could just experiment with a lot of things and you just lose sight of building a business. It seems like everyone talks about getting funding, but I think it was important for you to say that you can take on too much funding and then they're forcing you almost to use that money. Yeah. I guess it's being smart about it, not getting too much or even when you're leaner, Obviously, you're a little bit smarter with your money versus, again, having to deploy it right away. Yeah. So things went south with Sensei, and then did you end up going somewhere else or starting your own company? I didn't necessarily go south. I basically felt that the company is not accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. So I want to go and start fresh. I wasn't really, again, ideas don't come on demand. You just don't wake up one day and say, hey, I want to start you always have a hundred ideas in your head, but then doing the formulation because ideas are cheap, but they're all half-baked because some problems are real and some problems are made up and you just think that there is a possible business there. Right out of Sensei, I went into another startup, but it wasn't my own startup. I joined yet another startup and there were a couple of startups where I was doing more of a consulting thing. It was less of let's find something immediate, something permanent, but more like let's collect my thoughts. And I eventually ended up joining as a late stage co-founder to a startup in San Francisco. And it was looking, the guy that became my co-founder, he already had a company incorporated and whatnot and a prototype going and him and I got together and I decided that's the company that I want to be a late stage co-founder for. And it had a very good idea and it really played into my strengths because I spend a lot of time on e-commerce side and also spend a lot of time on marketing side. So this was a B2B business and there was a marketing platform or at the time it was offer management platform into a point of sales. So if you can imagine a tablet that restaurants and shops use in order to do a checkout. And the software was integrated into the tablet that allowed a business owner, a small business owner, to launch coupons and offers that could be redeemed right there and then. The solution allowed for distribution of these digital coupons, obviously. You could come in with your phone and basically scan it and get a discount. So if you came in and you bought a coffee and bought a donut and said, okay, why don't you get a coffee with that too? And you would just redeem it. It started out as an offer management platform and it had lots of technology around geofencing, kind of getting people into the store and when they were nearby and so on. It had a lot of features that loyalty program for a small to medium business company would want and eventually grow out into a full-blown marketing platform where you not just to manage your existing customer base or incentivize your existing customer base to come in and continue being your customer and to purchase things, but also allowed general purpose advertisement and to have people come in and become new customers, focus from existing customers to new customers. Now, over time, we had the initial point of sales we were integrated into was part of Capital One company that was bought. And so we were integrated into that platform. And so Capital One was our largest customer. But then we had other customers like Bank of America and Wells Fargo. Again, these were not the companies that were enticing people to come in, but they're basically part of their business suite that they offer some of their customers. It became sort of an interesting dichotomy where we're not, some of the customers we're close to and customers, and some we were not because we were B2B to B2C. That's a lot of Bs in between. Let's say Capital One and then Capital One had businesses as its customers a donut shop or a coffee shop that it was banking with Capital One. So they offered that product to that business. And then that business obviously used that product to manage its customers. So again, uh, quite a chain. Yeah, well, B to B to B to C, because you're the first business, right? That's right. We're the first. <laughs> BQ. There's quite a few Bs there. And it's not the easiest business to run, right? Right. The success of the business is in large part is related to you keeping the finger on the pulse of your customer base. And it's harder to do when there's a lot of bees in between. And that's one of the advices to entrepreneurs is to be as close to their customers as they possibly can be because it gives them a feedback loop that allows for them to improve the products. Sorry, that was a lot technically. Hopefully people can understand that. I don't see many businesses who get this far away, like you're saying, from that end customer, you know, especially if I'm talking to like a retail shop or something, right? Because then it's just right there or B2B, but I've never even heard of like being able to go 
that deep into it and think about that far. So eventually, it sounds like Capital One bought y'all. And then how about we spend these last few minutes at least talking about Reagan and starting it a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure thing. On my last year of earnout at Capital One, I got introduced to my Reagan co-founder, Kyle. Kyle started the business in 2014, or at least started working on the minimal viable product at 2014. And this wasn't my idea, obviously, because I was a late stage co-founder. I joined Reagan as a technical and product co-founder later. But the story of Reagan starting is a very typical story of the startup. Noticing the problem from the outside, doing customer interviews and seeing what the customers are doing, or in this particular case, it's the construction companies and what superintendents do on the job side and what sort of problems they encounter and finding that nugget, because if you look at construction, there is hundreds of workflows that they do in various stages of the construction project. And it could be during the planning phase and during the execution phase and during the transition phase. So Raken is definitely firmly grounded in the execution phase because it deals with daily reporting. So noticing that workflow and how essential it is to getting a successful construction project completed was the point of innovation, which is seeing that superintendents and job foremans, they still use pen and paper to complete a daily report, which is basically what you do at the conclusion of the day on the job construction side, because you want to make sure that you document everything that occurred and you pass it on to the office that has a huge Gantt chart on its wall than when it prepared during the build up phase of the or the planning phase of the project and seeing if everything is on time and on target. You could see it's a cumbersome process too. It's air prone process because it's open to interpretation. So especially on a large job construction site when you have a lot of subcontractors, they're dealing with your project manager or project engineer could be dealing with the hundreds and hundreds of pieces of information that come to him or her in all kinds of shapes and forms. Could be tear out of a journal or it could be an email or it could be a PDF, which makes it a nightmare. And that's also an advice to would-be entrepreneurs is to look for problems they're just making people's life difficult. So what you're looking for is not a vitamin. You're not looking to enrich somebody's life. You're looking for a painkiller. It's a pain that you must resolve. And when you find that, and you find that in some of the industries, like construction industry that's traditional and still uses old means of production or managing, in case of Reagan, managing its projects, and you found something you could potentially solve. What has been the transition over the last year and a half? Like, what have you been mostly involved in? What's your like day-to-day? I came on board as a technical and product co-founder. And That involves shaping the product and how the product looks and feels and how people interact with that product. And obviously, if you look at any software company, it's an iceberg. What you see, it's a tiny bit that sticks out of the water. And the majority of it is below the waves. And that below the waves infrastructure is building, hiring technical people, building infrastructure, putting processes in place and putting sort of technical imprint onto the product. That's what I've been. And also, as a co-founder of the company, you end up doing lots of different things. So I eventually started doing marketing as well. But yes, product technology and marketing is the areas that I cover. And if you look at those things in terms of questions, so product is what we're going to do. Technology is how we're going to do it. So I concern myself is with questions of what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, and from a marketing perspective, how we're going to let others know about it. So if you think of your jobs in terms of questions, those are the questions that I handle. How do you market for Raken? Raken has a very interesting earned way of marketing. And when I say earned, there's all kinds of media that you have in general, and some of it is called paid media. You basically go out there, spend money, and you advertise. Other media that you deal with is called owned media. Owned media is what you do from both PR perspective, what you do what you brand yourself. It has a tentacles into PR or a brand management. Raken, because it has such a high satisfaction with its customers, our own customers and our own content that we produce become the champions for the company. 70% would-be potential users come from either from referrals or they've heard of us in the industry because we have a great reputation and we have a very high what's called NPS score. NPS 
refers to net promoter scores. So we have our customers, which are basically our champions. And that's kind of the best way to build a business. You build it on the groundswell of satisfaction. And we're a lending expense strategy company where we, our initial, we might be working with the company, with the general contractor or subcontractor that uses us on the project or two, but eventually ends up using us for all their projects. So it's success-based type strategy. We go behind success. So we don't ask them to commit up front to a lot of things. We basically tell them, give us a chance to earn your business, and we do. Well, I think, yeah, you've left us with a lot of nuggets, man. And as far as like, I think it's something you can rewind and go slowly. There's great points, I think, every like few minutes that you're making here. But if you had to just boil it down to a couple points for any entrepreneurs who are starting a business, I guess you're more from the technical side, but any side really, I mean, what suggestions would you have for anyone trying to start their own business? Well, one suggestion I have is there's no way of tiptoeing into the business. You need to basically jump both feet in. So that's one. Find the problem that you're passionate about and make sure that that's a painkiller. It's not a vitamin. It's a true, true problem. Try to do that. And three, it's never too early to build a culture in the company. Don't think that there's just a few people and it's too early. Build a culture. And building a culture, I feel that you know, culture in a lot of companies treated as sort of a table stakes thing where you need to be respectful to others and don't come to work naked. <laughs> so, but that's not culture. That's table stakes. This is what you would expect from people you meet. Culture is what you actively define as how we do things, how we resolve conflict, how we make decisions. All of those things make up culture and you should go beyond table stakes. Oh, yeah. Luckily, this is not a video podcast, so you can't see if I'm fully clothed or not. We have a different culture here, but we're just going to make an assumption. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we really appreciate you sharing your story and your experiences. Sergey, if someone wanted to reach out and learn more about you or say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way is email me at Kraken and it's easy, Sergey at KrakenApp.com. All right. Well, thank you for doing the interview. Austin, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you're looking for other tech-based interviews, then consider these episodes. Episode 74 with Ryan Buckley of Twofer, where he tells you should you invest in sales or marketing. Episode 79 with Brad Martineau, where he talks about getting kicked out of his family business. Episode 82 with Carl Taylor, where he talks about automating your business. Or try episode 85 with Jonathan Cogley, where he talks about building a software startup. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, Give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode. So don't be scared to get creative. As always, thanks for tuning in and sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and loved ones.